Well, guys, here we are, the seventh, the seventh night. Uh, and man, what a beautiful week uh, it's been. Um, I am so grateful um, to be able to just spend this kind of time meditating on these words. You know, I was sharing last night, you kind of have to take the sixth and seventh statement together. And Jesus, we're told after he received the sour wine, it says that he cried out these words, it is finished. And as we considered last night that, that it is finished, but for us it's not over yet. That to speak of the completion of Christ's work is not to say that there's nothing left to do or it's just to say that there is nothing we can add. There's nothing we can do to add to the salvation that has been perfectly worked out. It's, it's like taking the most perfect piece of art ever created and then trying to improve upon it. Like none of us are going to add anything to the Mona Lisa. Um, but even the most perfect work of art in human history, the most perfect musical composition, uh, it, it doesn't matter because it still, it still has a fading quality to it uh, when it's made by the hands of fallen people. The most beautiful works of architecture. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Barcelona and seen the, archi- the architect Gaudi, um, who's his unfinished temple, uh, is this cathedral that's built. It almost looks like it's made of bones. It's, there's no 90, de- 90 degree angles on it. It's the most incredible piece of work, unfinished, incomplete. And so is so much of what we as human beings do. So much that we do is incomplete. The greatest, as I was sharing last night in, in um, completing this incredible novel that I read around the great scientists of the 20th century who, who brought so much progress to human civilization. I mean, geniuses, minds that could compute mathematics almost as fast as a computer. I mean, intellects that are gigantic, but these incredible, you think of quantum mechanics, for example. We wouldn't have the smartphone or the internet or the computer without it. Nobody actually understands how it works, but we understand it enough to harness its ability to do things. But yes, it's brought a lot of good, but what unbelievable evil it's brought as well. The great chemist Fritz Haber, who developed the Haber process that allowed fertilization the, uh, to bring forth incredible plentiful harvests in the world that allowed the population of the planet to go from 1 billion to 7.5 billion in less than 100 years because before the 20th century it was it, fertilizer was actually a, a, a very sacred commodity which is why so many people died of starvation and yet that same chemist is also the father of chemical warfare and his own fertilizer being a Jewish German man who died before World War II was utilized to gas his own people in the Holocaust. He won the Nobel Prize for the invention that actually was used by the Germans to slaughter millions. He saved millions, but it killed millions, but not with the work of Jesus. It's a complete work. It's a perfect work. You know, in the creation story, 
God created and then he said it was good and when he completed everything he said it was very good and then on the seventh day he rested I've always been fascinated by that because what does God mean when he says that something is good Jesus said why do you call me good there is no one who is good but God but God says of his creation it's good I think that the essence of what is meant by that is when he saw it it was what he intended it to be now this is why it's fascinating that God says over Adam when we are zoom in on day two and uh, our day six in chapter two of Genesis Adam was created before Eve there's a gap between the creation of man and woman and I don't believe that gap is is any statement on uh, on uh, some sort of favoritism of men over women I believe the gap was purposeful so that man would feel his incompleteness because God says over Adam who has God all to himself this is why I argue that Augustine's famous statement the one who has God has everything is actually not a true statement because God and Adam were together in perfect union no sin had yet entered the story and yet it's the one thing that God says what it's not good that man be alone this actually speaks to this closing statement of Jesus for Jesus felt what real isolation is he felt separation sin is by nature separation it is separation between us and God. It is separation between us and one another. And it is ultimately even separation from our ability to understand ourselves. And, and this, is, this is a deep problem. But the whole essence of the gospel, aligning all the way back to the Genesis account, is that God is relational. That His being is relationship. He is a triune God, one God, three persons. That is, He is a perfect community within Himself. And He created us to be in relationship. And it, and it wasn't just enough to be in relationship with God. He knew that we needed to be in relationship with others like ourselves. I think the creation of Eve isn't so much necessarily about uh, the creation and uh, the creation of Adam and Eve is not so much about the creation of man and woman as it is about the creation of community it's about the creation of human beings needing one another and and this is a beautiful reality that that we have to take into consideration and when you actually take the creation account and you take the seven days of creation and we look at the seven words of Jesus at least the last two statements align with day six and day seven for Jesus has completed the work and now he is restored in relationship in that horrifying statement that brings actually so much hope to us my God my God why have you forsaken me it's one of the few times that Jesus refers to his father as God and not his father the father-son relationship has experienced some sort of mysterious rift and it's not our place to speculate what that separation was but it was something something happened there was some kind of some kind of schism there was something riven in the relationship between the father and son where 
what he feels is the presence of God's judgment upon sin. But we also have to remember it's dangerous to say the Father is judging the Son without doing damage to the Godhead. We aren't multiple gods here. The whole Godhead is involved in the anguish of sin being judged. And in that moment when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We also have to remember that he is both the judge and the judged in our place. So it isn't the weak son in the, in the angry dad. This isn't cosmic child abuse. This is the divine Godhead working out our salvation. The forsaking moves to the restoration though. The victory. The victory of Jesus' final words, it is finished, finds its, finds its totality in these closing words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God is replaced once again with Father. The reunion. Now it says that he cried out. So I, I don't know if that we can say that this is a picture of perfect respite. I think what we are seeing Jesus model for us all the way to the end in absolute obedience to the Father in the fulfilling of the law is He shows us what surrender to God looks like in our darkest moments. That I'm about to enter into death. The one who is the author of life was going to experience something that has no part in His very being. Have you guys ever thought about that? God is not the creator of death. He is the creator of life. Death is the unnatural outcome of sin. And I think that this is a, this is a profound philosophical reality, but it's really far more spiritual, is that Jesus is entering into unknown territory. The one who knows all there is to know is experiencing something he had not known before. And I don't know how that works. It doesn't really matter. I believe it. And I believe that Jesus took our suffering, our separation, our sin. And we can't just play this out as the cross is just a perfect example of love. It is also a perfect illustration of how deadly sin is and the severity by which it must be judged. And so we shouldn't just, we shouldn't whitewash the cross. Sin demands the shedding of blood. This isn't the scapegoat mechanism for Jesus is the only innocent scapegoat in human history. This is God atoning for you and I. And He doesn't need us. And yet He chooses to not exist without us. And that is a mystery. When I look at these words... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We can see that Jesus was confident in the authority the Father had given him. You remember what he says in John 10, verses 17 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. The charge I have received from my Father. This charge I have received from my Father. No one took the life of Jesus. He willingly surrendered Himself to murderers. And yet at the same time, 
there is a cosmic guilt upon all of humanity. We are the murderers of Jesus. Jesus, from God's side, we couldn't murder Jesus unless Jesus allowed himself to be murdered. And so it was his plan. He doesn't lose control even as he surrenders to the worst that man can do. And this is, you know, I, I remember reading a story about um, Mel Gibson when he was making The Passion. They, he, he, there's one scene where he's in The Passion and he is the soldier that hammers the nail into Jesus' hands. And he wanted to do that actually as an act of, of worship because he wanted to remind himself that he was responsible for this thing that he was recreating. That, that this wasn't just a movie, this is his conviction. He's a very, very devout Catholic, Latin mass Catholic. And, and the, the, the painstaking detail that he went to to recreate the crucifixion, I mean, it's, a, it's like the only rated R film Christians have ever fully embraced. <laughs> It's the only rated R film that was regularly shown also in churches when it came out. Um, and it was, it was a really, I remember showing Henry way too young. I think I showed him when he was five, The Passion. And, uh, and he started crying at the end. Like he just, he could not get his head. It didn't help his understanding. It was just like, why did you make me watch that? It was like a horror movie. <laughs> it is like a slasher flick. <laughs> um, and it, but it's accurate, but Mel Gibson couldn't capture the spiritual reality of what is going on. Because torture, people have been tortured horribly. I would even say far worse than Jesus was tortured on a purely physical basis, where people have been kept alive much longer and horrible things have been done to them. No, it wasn't the uniqueness of the suffering. The, what made it unique was who was suffering and the fact that he is truly innocent, truly innocent, like the innocence of a, of a newborn baby, just nothing had been done wrong. He was able to take the sin nature into himself without ever acting upon it, without ever sinning. That is my conviction, is that when it says the word became flesh, is that he didn't, he wasn't playing by some sort of special rule, like he became a superman. Um, in that he was actually immune to sin. No, sin impacted him. That's why he was the son of sorrows. It impacted him even more deeply because he never collapsed to it. He shows us what total surrender looks like. And so these final words, this final cry of Jesus is consistent with the very thing he did every day while he walked on this earth, which is surrendered to the Father, committed himself to the Father, committed himself to the Father again and again. And it gives us the greatest insight. And if we want to experience the victorious Christian life, if we want to have rest in the midst of the storm, we've got to learn how to surrender. We've got to be confident that Jesus' work in us and through us, the work that he has prepared for us, is the best thing that we could do with our lives. But sometimes, our vision of that work is darkness all around. And I know as one who works in ministry as an occupation, there are times where the silence of God is deafening. And, and my hope 
and my commitment to him in those times when I feel his silence is I remind myself I wouldn't know anything about his silence if I hadn't first heard his, heard his voice, if I hadn't first experienced his presence. We need to remember that we, like the disciples, I think people want the Mount of Transfiguration every day. It's my one, my one um, gentle warning to my Pentecostal brothers and sisters who put so much on, um, so much premium on experience. And believe me, I think we can learn a lot from our very charismatic brothers and sisters in having more expectant spirits when it comes to experiencing God. I think a lot of people don't experience God because they're not actually expecting to experience God. They're not actually pushing into that experience. But I also think it's dangerous to expect to experience God every moment of every day like it's the Mount of Transfiguration because the bottom line is the Mount of Transfiguration happened once and then it was back in the valley and it was back into the valley for most of those disciples of doubt because when Jesus died, the disciples scattered and they, fa- they saw him transfigured to his gloried, glorified self. They got a preview of his resurrection self. And yet, after he died, it's like they forgot it. But you know that feeling. When you experience something extraordinary, where it almost feels like you experience something supernatural, or, or seen something unbelievable. I just had this happen last week. This happened to me a few times where I've been out in the wilderness and seen something that you just don't see every day. And then after it's over, uh, you're like, did I, did I really just see that? I was, I was working on, on my book on a table on the Deschutes River, like in this house that looks out across the Deschutes. And it sits down um, at the Pelton Dam, which is like this incredible, like, wildlife preservation just if if you like bird watching kind of secretly really like bird watching um it's ospreys everywhere herons like so many different kinds of water birds it's beautiful but i'm, I'm sitting at the table and there's there's this ridge that goes up out of the river like and it's very steep and and i see something moving out of the corner of my eye and i look up and there's an animal but it's moving weird like a it looked like it was moving like a snake down the hill, but it was clearly a big furry animal. And I was like, I've never seen any animal move like that. So I grabbed the binoculars. Don't ask me what it was doing all the way up on the hillside, but it was an otter. It was a river otter, like scurrying down the hill, like moving like a brown furry snake. It was so weird. And it, sure enough, it like gets to the edge of the river and it's like its cute little face with its whiskers and it just jumps in the river and swims away. Well, right behind it, comes barreling down the hill this giant dog and i'm like that's not a dog is it a coyote that looks too big to be a coyote that's a wolf that's a wolf chasing that thing and i'm like wait a minute there's no wolves here what am i saying and i look online and sure enough there is a wolf pack on the on the warm springs reservation that's been there for the last four years and they their ground they cover is all the way from pelton dam to the to uh, the edge of mount hood um, from white river all the way down uh, to the deschutes and this giant wolf it man i could be wrong it could have been a really really chunky coyote but it was coyotes don't have shaggy fur on their chest or faces face was really boxy but it was at the edge of the river why was the otter up on the hill but here's the thing, after it happened, 
the, the wolf was so fast, it was like down, and then I, I was so excited, I was like looking for my phone because I wanted to try to get a picture of it, and I turned back around and it was gone. And I was like, wait, how did that, and I had, I mean, I was watching it in the binoculars, but the moment I put my binoculars down, it's like I couldn't find it again, and then I was like, did that just happen? Did this really happen? But I've had those moments with God as well, where I've experienced that still soft voice, that, that gentle pressing. I've even experienced healing before and doubted that. And, and I think that this is the thing is that Jesus' confidence shows us that no matter how, could you think of a darker moment where it would be more likely to doubt your father's goodness than when you're hanging in anguish about to die? And yet, this word he speaks is so beautiful. It's so profound. For he draws directly from Psalm 31, verse 5. Jesus, it's amazing that Jesus utilized the scripture even while he was hanging on the cross. I think it's important to note that. That Jesus quotes from Psalm 22. Here we have him quoting from Psalm 31 that the scripture was a comfort for him. Your word, O oh God, is, is, is a living word, guiding light. Think of the Psalms. And yet he says here in Psalm 31, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. But Jesus replaces the unfamiliar, unknowable reality of Yahweh who dwelled in unapproachable light the pathos of God. He was a God who was available to the Israelites. And Moses was considered a friend and so was David. But Jesus shows us a whole nother level of intimacy by showing us that God is our Father. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Yes, Jesus was confident in the authority that the Father had given him, but he was also confident in the Father's care. It is a world, it is a word of a little child falling asleep into his Father's arms. He trusts his Father in this moment of darkness as he is about to enter into death in its fullest form. He really died. When love died, was born again anew. This seventh day is it is the this is the the moment of new creation for Jesus has completed the work and he is bringing forth now a new humanity. Everything is pointing us toward resurrection Sunday. Everything is pointing us toward the resurrected crucified king. You can never separate the crucifixion from the resurrection. The resurrection is dependent upon the crucifixion. And the crucifixion is, uh, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon that completed perfect work that cannot be added to. And it will never, it will never diminish. It will not fade like the great works of art in the world. It is eternally secure. He has taken sin and dealt with it once and for all. He has taken death and He has dealt with it once and for all. He has dismantled the dominions of darkness. Satan, the ruler of this world and his dominion has been defeated once and for all. Total victory. 
And now the work's done and all that is left is just simply, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know that the prayer, um, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to, to take. I think, is that right? Yeah, it's been so long since I prayed it. But there was another verse, it's like, and what was it? It's like, and if I live, do you guys know? It's like, if I live another day, uh, it, was an added, it was an added verse, but it's essentially like, and if I live tomorrow, may I do the works, uh, may I like serve you faithfully, something, blah, 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 it rhymes. My point is, it's not a beneficial verse. Jesus is praying the right thing in that the original prayer is right, is that we don't worry about tomorrow for sufficient are the troubles of the day. We're not supposed to talk to Jesus about the work we're going to do tomorrow. We're supposed to surrender ourselves to him each morning anew. And when we go to sleep, there is a closure. Sleep in a way is like a little bit of death and a little bit of heaven. You know what I mean? I, I, it's uh, depending on what your dream life is like. <laughs> but there is something about rest. There is a, it, it is a, a strange thing when you really think about we're recharging. It, it is a Evan, he does not, he, he feels very, Evan understands the dangerous nature of sleep. He doesn't like people to observe him while he's sleeping. He doesn't like to be seen sleeping. But it is, it's, it's kind of, you're, you're, you're in, a, you're in a, a dangerous, have you ever had friends like do pranks on you when you're sleeping? I mean, it, it's not fun. I've had cayenne pepper put on my, on my all over my mouth. That wasn't fun. <laughs> I also had someone once put icy hot, hot all over my hands while I was sleeping, and then I rubbed my. Ooh, that's horrible. <laughs> thought thought Lewis was here for a second. <laughs> uh, there is something. There is something kind of a picture of of death that comes with sleep, if you will, a temporary closure of all things and then a reawakening. But for us, death is like sleep because it's not over. It's not, it's not the, we're no longer threatened by non-being because we know because of Jesus, we will continue. That His finish is our real beginning. He was confident in the Father's care. He knew His Father was with Him whether He could feel His presence or not. And I can't tell you what Jesus was thinking or feeling. All we know is what he spoke. But I can tell you that no matter what he was experiencing, his father, he knew his father. And therefore, regardless of what he was experiencing or felt or perceived, he could trust him all the way to the grave. And I think that this is one of the beautiful things for those of us as we, as we age. And as we, as we move, uh, as I'm moving into that second half of my life, and maybe it, my, my, I might be three quarters done. It's probably possible. My dad just died at 69. I, I've, my, uncle, my uncle Rick died of a heart attack at 35, and he was healthy. Two friends I lost at 45. We never know when the day will come. 
I could be, I could die on my way home tonight. But I will say this, there is a power in walking with Jesus for a long time. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the easier it is for me to be confident in times where it's hard to sense His presence. Because I remember what it was like when I fell in love with Him. I remember what it was like when I experienced His presence. This is one of the reasons why people encourage I've seen her leaders, and I think it's a great thing, my, my wife does it, keeps journals. And just writes down the way that God speaks and the way that God answers prayers. It's a really powerful way to remind yourself that, because that, we have periods where we're like, is this, is this real? Is this thing, is this, is this happening? Because the world can, can kind of shut us in from all sides, and it can be very difficult to hear God's voice. The picture we have here with Jesus is He's showing us what it means to walk by faith. What it means to live by faith. He had confidence the Father was with him. Think of Paul's words that he writes to Timothy right before he was killed. For I know whom I, I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He will complete that which he has begun. I know in whom I have believed. What a powerful statement. Can you say that about your relationship with Jesus? Are you confident that He's with you? Well, let me tell you, whether you're confident that He is or not, He is. He is nearer to you than you are to your own thoughts. God is in this place. The problem is we often find ourselves like that powerful verse in which we say God is in this place and we didn't know it. But we know it. We can know it. He was confident in where he was going. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Where I am going, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The power of, of that section of John 14 tells us here that Jesus is confident. He, he knows exactly. He knows exactly where he's going. And he already told his disciples where he's going. He said, Father, remember in his high priestly prayer, I am ready to have the glory restored to me that I had with you in the beginning. I have completed your work. And how he has gone before us as our trailblazer. And he's better than our trailblazers because he doesn't lose. Okay? And they're good. But they lose a lot. It's kind of fortunately that I always love that as a theological term, and it's kind of sort of ruined for me that it's a basketball team name. But Jesus literally, uh, that the word in the Greek and Hebrew is that he's he's the pioneer. You could be uh, translated trailblazer. It could be translated architect. Uh, that he is the one that goes before us, and he has created a whole new reality, a new path for us. It is hard to be confident in life when we don't know where we're going. 
Now, I don't know where I'm going tomorrow, but I do know the end of the story. And this is the beauty. Jesus just said, follow me. He never said where he was going, but we know where we are ultimately going. And that is the anchor that allows God to lead us all sorts of crazy places as we move toward that, that finish line. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jesus has moved through death and He has prepared a place for us and He has committed His perfect work to the Father, His soul to the Father, and He knew where His, his confidence was so powerful and we now have because of this, access to the Father. We can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You guys, if you want to experience rest, if you want to experience shalom in the midst of the storm, because life is difficult, it's insane, it's often impossible. It really is. Think about, think about our Christian brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. Think about our non-Christian brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now. We have no idea what can come. Did you even think that's... We don't even think that that is something that is even feasible in, our, in, in the world in which we live. And yet, did any of you see a pandemic coming and racial unrest? Do you know that Portland just hit 391 shootings uh, in January to March? I mean, it's like... it's. 10 times what it was even five years ago. The world is dangerous. Life is uncertain. But we know the end of the story. And that confidence, that peace that comes from knowing that God is with us no matter what we're experiencing, that's what it means to be in the eye of the storm, is to find that, that restful center. It's one of the things as I go on to a four-month sabbatical is that I just need to get recentered because I got so wrapped up in the in the peripherals of how exhausting life is, exhausting ministry is in the city, the endless challenges of homelessness. One of this dear friend of of Henry's uh, just just was found dead um, by his father a week ago from from a fentanyl overdose, uh, and he's 20 years old. I went and shared the gospel with him three times in juvie four years ago, um, and. I mean, he was, his name was Ellis, like a sweet boy. And his dad sh shared the heartbreaking story that he, he walked over his dead son's body thinking he was sleeping to go outside and have a smoke. And that's the only thing he could talk about at the memorial because he was so devastated by the fact that he didn't know his boy was dead. This is a tragic world. If we don't have confidence in Jesus, I mean, what will... I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know if I have what it takes to make sense of the absurdity of so much in this world without being reminded that God is good and on the throne and that He is still in the business of seeking and saving and pursuing the lost and the hurting. And I, I comfort myself with Ellis. That Ellis prayed with me when I, when I shared the gospel with him in prison. He, like my dad, he didn't understand a lot and he even came to church a couple times with Henry. And I just, I just say, Lord, you know, the hearts of man. You know this boy. But these are the realities. The uncertainty of life must always be held, um, held before 
the absolute immovable reality of the cross. That's why we can't move away from the cross as our center. I ask you in closing, do you have confidence the way that Jesus had confidence? I'm not asking you, are you Jesus? I'm saying, are you confident that the Father is with you? Are you confident that God has your life in his hands and that he cares? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I close with this, said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man and woman must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man and woman which is the result of his encounter with Jesus. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, a woman, He bids them come and die. Only the one who is dead to their own will can follow Christ. Spoken by a man who died at the hands of the Nazis, hung, a man of faith. And as people wrote about Bonhoeffer who were with him in prison, said that it was a joy to be with him even to the morning he was executed. Nothing could rob him of that calm confidence that he could commit himself into the hands of Jesus. Just as Jesus committed himself into the hands of his Father. This is our guarantee in a world of uncertainty. Amen.